Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. The novel Fugitive Pieces is a work of art. It brought author Anne Michael's accolades and the Orange Prize for Fiction. Michaels has not rested on her laurels, however. She is currently Toronto's Poet Laureate, and her latest collection of poems, All We Saw, has garnered rave reviews. Her non-fictional Infinite Gradations is a meditation on art and death. She discusses her life's writing with Michael Williams in a session supported by the Sarah Broom Poetry Trust and the Canada Council for the Arts. We hope you enjoy listening to this. Um, I am going to keep my introduction of our guest today incredibly brief because I'm keen to get our chat underway. Um, but novelist, poet, until recently a Toronto Poet Laureate, and I think arguably also the Poet Laureate of memory and loss and grief. Thank you. Uh, an I know that sounds like a very grim introduction, but... Uh, uh, Anne Michaels, uh, I imagine, I can't see anyone in the audience, but I imagine there's not a person in this room that doesn't have a copy of Fugitive Pieces on their shelves at home. It is a book that um, landed in the world and announced an extraordinary talent and uh, moved and changed the way I read, certainly, and, uh, and many people I know. Uh, it, it, one of their favorite books. Uh, it was 13 years until your next novel, uh, following that, but you were not, uh, you didn't go quietly in those 13 years. Many collections of poetry, um, uh, much writing. I'm keen to talk about time. I'm keen to talk about the space between things. Uh, that second novel was The Winter Vault, which I think was even better than Fugitive Pieces. Uh, your most recent book is the collection of poetry, All We Saw. And maybe before we chat, if you could read us uh, something to get us started. I'm going to read from All We Saw. The, uh, I really want to say that it is an enormous privilege to be able to be here, to have an hour together, and um, thank you all so much for coming. This book um, was written after the death of most of the people who were most important to me, who all died within a short period of time. And this book honors their memory. And it is also an attempt to find language for the inexpressible. Um, I felt that there must be some way that death could give, not only take from us. And that there might be some way to express the difference between silence and muteness. And so, actually, before I begin to read, if you don't mind, I just want to read aloud the names uh, of those for whom this book was written. Beverly Berger, Mark Strand, Ellen Seligman, Leonard Cohen, John Berger, Claire Wilkes, Rosalind Michaels. 
This is a poem called To Write. To write, because the dead can read. Because she thought everyone came home to find their family taken. Because the one closest to her cannot speak. Because he drew love into him from each body he entered. Because they are keeping her from him. Because the last time they met, he misunderstood her absolutely. Because a finger can hold a place in a book. Because a book rests in a lap. Because words are secrets passed one to another on a train. The same train where letters were crammed between slats to be found by strangers. Because they recognize each other over huge distances. Because a true word everywhere is samizdat. Because everything political is personal and not the other way around. Because forgiveness is not about the past but the future and needs another word. Because the true witness of your soul is sometimes one you've scorned. Because it is possible to be married to someone who died many years before you were born because he painted the intimate objects of their life together, not from observation, but from memory. Though surrounded by the teacups, the flowers, the garden, he retreated to his small room to paint, each object transformed by love. Because words are mirrors that set fire to paper. Because every day she risked her life for him. Because he remembered this too late because he was mistaken, because he was certain, because certainty and doubt consume each other like dogs in a parable, because of a Sunday morning in London, because of a cemetery in Wales, because of a mountain and a river, because he imagined himself an orphan, because an infant cannot carry herself, because of drawings on fax paper, because she sends her SMS with broken thumbs and an empty battery, because to be heard we do not need a pencil and we do not even need a tongue and we do not even need a body, because the one who holds the pen, even if it's too dark to see the page, and even if the ink is his own blood, is free because an action can never be erased by a word, because we set down what we cannot bear to remember, because we cannot take back what we sang, because the dead can read. And if you don't mind, bear with me a very short poem, which might um, gentle our way into our conversation. Ask aloud. 
to taste the salt of the stars in the sea, to love another more than oneself. To know this is to know everything. Do you see how the dusk and rain are one? Do our bodies come to nothing? Not how we fall in love, but how we fail in love. Ask aloud what comes of us. My love, do you understand me? Not surmise, sunrise. Ask aloud what comes of us. I'm sorry, I'm cancelling all my other plans for life. I'm going to sit here and have you read to me uh, for the rest of time. If it's okay, I may weep quietly while you do it as well. Only if I can weep too. <laughs> Deal. Um, there, there's so much in that, and those poems are a beautiful jumping off point. Um, I'm interested in, you talked about that question of kind of silence and absence and writing into the silence, the difference between silence and muteness. Is that equally for you a starting point for prose as it is poetry, or is that very much a kind of poetic impulse, trying to write into silence? Um, it's very much for both. And um, whether I have 400 pages or four words, um, not a word can be wasted. Uh, so, to get at that place that gives the reader a space to be close to the words, to, be, to hold the reader close, um, it's, uh, I think, not only a responsibility, uh, a privilege, but it's, it's a question of trust, because whatever I set down on the page is what I have found through a very rigorous kind of discipline. And I, I don't believe in the ma manipulation of language. I think uh, when we manipulate language, then we are, it's very difficult to escape certainty, a sense of certainty, and I think that sense of certainty almost always leads to something false. So the difference between manipulation of language and the discipline of language, because what you have to say um, completely dictates uh, how you say it, and there has to be a space for a relationship for uh, between the reader and the and the word, and between the reader and the writer, um, and so making that distinction between silence and muteness, between what is a natural silence or an enforced silence of nature, <laughs> as in death, um, is one thing. But the sense of muteness of of uh, utter humility. Um, 
in the face of something which, which really is ineffable? How can we have language for something that we really cannot understand um, for those mysteries like death, particularly in all we saw? How, how does language, how can we even begin to make language chaste enough, restrained enough to enter into a place that, that we cannot understand? It's fascinating though that you articulate it as the challenge to make it restrained enough or chaste enough to express these deeply powerful kind of responses and feelings. So rather than, you know, how can I give words the power or whatever, you clearly believe in and trust in the inherent power of the words if they're stripped back to their, to what they need to be. And I, I'm interested in that because you're, whether it's your longer form stuff or your poetry, precision is something that a lot of critics have talked about in your work and it, there is extraordinary precision, but there's also play. And that description from you about, about pairing it back, I'm curious about how you, where you keep the joy in words in there as well, because I think there's a lot of that in your work and I'm, I'm curious about how you achieve that balance. Well, the, um, to be noted as a poet of loss is actually um, really saying that this is a poetry of, of intense joy. Um, absolutely, because uh, loss and grief are, are in fact desire distilled to its absolute potency. Um, there were, with, in, in terms of paring it down to find the richness in something pared down, there's, there's several reasons. Um, and, and I have to say that it was it's somewhat terrifying because to put two words on a page, six letters on a page, is to um, hope that the reader understands that we're trying to cleanse language, cleanse language so that you can hear those two words uh, cleanly um, in all their simplicity and all their power. And for, for a poet, for any writer, that's absolutely terrifying to, to say, I'm going to take two simple words and give them an entire page. Um, but I think we're in a, a world which we're, we're drowning in input. And I often ask myself, how quiet does a voice need to be in order to be heard? So my sense of speaking is, I'm never going to outshout what's out there. <laughs> so how can I find a... Um, just the right tone, the right place to speak from that, that might be heard. That question, how quiet must a voice be in order to be heard, you bring up in your uh, collection of essays, Infinite Gradation, which 
which is a, a wonderful book and in many ways a companion piece to the poetry. The two of them uh, pace around each other on the question of grief and loss in ways that I think are very potent. But the follow-up question you ask to how quiet must a voice be is, who am I to say? Who am I if I don't say? Is it harder, is it more exposing as a writer to write out of personal grief? Uh, is that a different exercise to writing based on broad research, on your reading, on your... This seems like a very intensely personal phase of your writing. The trick um, of, of this kind of poetry is to, well, I believe that writing is not self-expression. I think writing is expressing beyond the self. And uh, so the trick in, in this kind of poetry is that that kind of um, personal content has been so um, so distilled or so um, expressed in such a way that it is completely uh, as, a, as, a, as a gift to, to ever, whoever reads it um, to bring themselves to the work, to bring themselves to the book. I, I don't want to be bringing the reader to my life. I want to be bringing the reader to their own life. So that's the goal. And so I think that in, in writing, um, even what seems to be the most intensely personal work is really been shaped to give the reader a place to um, feel whatever they need to feel and think about whatever they need to feel. And we, we need to care um, and not only with our hearts, but we need to care with, with our ideas. We need to care with our laws. And so, in all of these things, I want there to be space for us to contemplate that. We don't have a lot of space in our lives. No. I, I guess when I say personal, I think about it less in an individual sense, but almost as a writer talking about the process of writing and your readers. Um, one of the things that strikes me when you read movingly the list of names of people you'd lost is uh, obviously John Berger was one of your first readers, one of your great readers, a massive fan of your work. And so, uh, are you a fan of the American poet W.S. Merwin at all? I love, he wrote a poem called Eulogy uh, at the loss of someone who he loved a great deal and who was a reader of his. And the poem was a single line and it read, who would I show it to? And I love that because I just, I think it's an incredibly moving expression of the purpose of remembering, the purpose of is, is sharing. Can you talk a bit about, if it's not too personal, a bit about John and what it is to, um, to lose a reader? John was um, a phenomenal person. He was just as you imagine from his books that he would be, which is not often the case, I think, for a writer, for the relationship between writer and reader. 
Um, and we actually shared a tremendous amount of laughter because we were both really deadly serious. And uh, so we could have that, that joyousness between us. Um, he um, wrote to me after reading me, which was a very John thing to do. And that's how our relationship began. And we corresponded for a long time before we met each other. Um, we knew each other over 30 years. Um, there was rarely a day that went by that he did not communicate with me or that we did not speak or he loved faxing. This was his preferred mode of expression because he could draw, because he, we could see each other's hand. Um, this was endlessly a delight. And um, he was often in parts of the world where there was a significant time change for me and we, so I would wake up in the morning and have a message uh, on the fax machine. And, and the joy of knowing that there was a loyalty there between us that had to do with the, the broadest reality of our work. Um, it was personal loyalty, of course, too, but, but the, the gift of knowing that someone is behind your enterprise, the enterprise of your soul, that is, that's a phenomenal gift. And I, I've had that gift from readers um, who write to me, and I, I take nothing for granted. And that, that ideal, that sense that we are all working for something larger than ourselves is, is a tremendous thing. And so um, I'm grateful to John for many things and we had a tremendously, tremendous intimacy um, and perhaps almost the most I'm grateful for that kind of uh, solidarity. Have you written letters to people whose work you've read since? I'm sorry, have I? Have you written letters to people whose work you've enjoyed since? Have you taken on some of that John's uh, interest in upcoming writers? And oh, I see, yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, again, what is it for? I mean, if not for that kind of community and, and making space for, for other voices. I, I really can't imagine um, work as a writer that doesn't involve that. Doesn't involve that. Um, it's not career for me, it's community for me. And uh, to make space for people whose voices we need to hear is it's fundamental. One of the things I so admire about your work uh, is, and you mentioned it yourself before, but is the seriousness with which you take your responsibility to both the word, to the ideas, to the, to the books. And I, I heard an interview where you were talking about fugitive pieces and you talked about the fact that 
the starting point for that book almost was facts, that you had to take the facts and they were the things you had to honour and build on. Can you talk about that process for us? Well, when, particularly in the novels, but with everything, um, I, I always proceed from fact um, because I want to write undefended. I don't want to have an agenda. I don't want to be uh, a, a political agenda, a psychological agenda, a religious agenda. I want to be stripped of any defense that I have um, where, in terms of historical event, I think that is the very least duty we have to people whose lives, who have, we're, whose experience um, we're, we're looking at as, as uh, eyewitness accounts, um, as historic event. And then the gathering of facts, as I always say, is an entirely different thing from discerning the meaning of the facts. And to understand the meaning of facts, that's, that's what takes so long. And I, will, I always say also that it's absolutely appropriate. If it takes 10 years, it takes 10 years. It could take a lifetime. Um, and all, at the end of that 10 years, all you're really doing is, is reaching a point where you have a relationship to that fact, to those facts, to those events. Um, so, so that, that's the, um, the drive behind trying to proceed from fact, from matter. Um, it's, so, it's so that I can proceed in an undefended way. And that, again, is, is quite scary mm. because you have no idea where you're going to end up and you have no idea if you're going to reach any point of redemption or... And I, I have always said that no matter how long I spend researching or working on a book, if I cannot honestly reach a point of that kind of redemption, some sense of, of forward motion, then I won't publish because I think it's my responsibility, and I want a reader to trust me on this, that I will not leave a reader in a place of helplessness. I think that is against everything that I, that I, that I want to do in my work. And so, if you reach that place of redemption, it has to be utterly earned I have to believe in it completely before I can uh, offer that to a reader. And it's no good otherwise. It's meaningless otherwise. That's so fascinating and such a beautiful idea to me that that relationship between needing a redemptive kind of path, needing a redemptive outcome on the one hand, but needing it to be honest and true on the other. Do you, in life, rather than in writing, believe in redemption? Do you believe that the universe is arcing towards uh, good and positive outcomes? Please say yes, I need this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do you believe that? <laughs> 
Well, I think actually that um, if we let it, life um, shows us that way. Um, I've said this before, and I, I'm happy to say it again because I believe it so strongly that um, we have no, uh, we need no proof of violence. We need no proof of horror, the power of it. We, we, we understand utterly how powerful that is. But again and again, we need to remember that the power of compassion, that absolute moment of empathy, is in fact more potent. Uh, when we're faced with horror, when we're faced with violence, as I know we have been faced with violence here and in, in my city in Toronto, we've been faced with similar violence over the past couple of years. We, what we give cannot be taken from us. So in response to that kind of violence, what we give, if we let love answer, it cannot be taken from us. And I also, I give the um, example of people who have helped each other um, in wartime, people who have helped strangers in wartime, who've, whose hand has been asked for, or who, who they have offered their hand in the moment of extreme crisis. And every time, when asked, the response is the same. What choice did I have? So, I think that, I think we have a, we have an instinct to do good, and that what we need is the will to do good. And that's something that we need to practice. We need to um, constantly be vigilant about. We need to create structures which support the will to do good. I think that every time we grieve someone we've lost, every time we draw close, um, love for those who are with us, for those who are no longer with us. We are in fact um, asserting that there is a power beyond what is taken from us. You, in that constant vigilance to will, I mean you said we know Violence, we accept violence, we see it and believe in it. But you said we need to remember compassion. And I'm interested in remembering and the act of creating memory and how much that's part of the great because of why you're right. Well, I think that memory is the... Um it's, it's the mechanism for, for going forward. Um, 
when we're in a world now where so many of us don't live in the place where we were born. We don't die in the place where we were born. Our children are, bo are not born in the place where we were born. So how do, we, um, how do we find a place for ourselves in a new world? Um, do we belong where we're born? Do we belong where we're buried? Uh, do we belong where we first fall in love? Do we belong where our children are born? Um, memory is a, is a way of um, identifying not only uh, where we come from, but where we are. And um, just as um, forgiveness, as I said in that poem, is not about the past, it's about the future. So, how we think about our lives, how we think about where we're from, the story we make um, is extremely important because it frames the way forward. It's funny, the parallels between you describing the project of finding the language to talk about loss and death and having a first novel that deals explicitly with being a Holocaust survivor. You know, that Adorno, that question about uh, how and when it's appropriate to apply language to things that are beyond contemplation. Do you, the time you take on what you write, are there things you've abandoned? Are there things you've tried to write and you haven't been able to find that plausible path to redemption, that, uh, that version of the story that feels like you can tell it? I think that in, um, usually what happens is that I, I have to just set it aside because I, whenever I feel that I am um, writing out of a need to know something um, rather than letting myself um, completely surrender to what I can't know. Um, and it's human nature to want to have a certain kind of certainty about things, to, to be able to grasp something. Um, when I, when I feel that temptation, I, I stop working. And I try and start to, from another place. Um, sometimes it's a place that seems very distant. Um, but I have a faith that in the end, things will marry up. And that if you're digging deep enough, the rivers will join. Um, and so, I think the key for me is to know when to stop, when I'm forcing something for the sake of my own well-being, my own um, desire to be, to, uh, to not have to keep pushing at something that, that doesn't want to reveal itself. Uh, knowing when to, to stop, to walk away, to abandon, um, to abandon, and then in the end, 
if I've done the work properly elsewhere, that question comes back. Because, again, it's, it's useless um, to create an answer. You have to, you have to find it. Yeah. Mm, I love that. So certainty of language applied to questioning of mind rather than certainty of mind. That's, that, that's a really lovely concept. You're going to get a chance to ask questions of Anne in the tech. There are a couple of microphones in the aisles, and you can make your way uh, to them in just a moment. So I'm flagging it now so that we don't get met with a sea of blank and nervous faces. Um, obviously, we may still get that, but we'll see how we go. Um, I, I, wanted to, um, I wanted to ask you um, about a particular uh, essay piece within Infinite Gradation um, and the relationship between Eddie Willison and Claire Wilkes as two artists and why you were drawn to their story. Um, Infinite Gradation is a, a small book of uh, essays. It's, 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 one, it's one long essay. Um, and in a general sense, it's, it's about what art makes of, of death. And so there are uh, stories of painters, visual artists, um, who in facing, it's dealing with, with last works. Um, when the artist knows that their time is, is limited and how they face that moment and what the art does um, with that acceptance. Um, so, uh, two of the artists, uh, one was Eddie Hillison, who was uh, a Dutch woman in the, during the Second World War, who, um, whose life was um, completely interrupted by the events of war, and she, she kept a diary. And um, the other is the uh, sculptor and painter, uh, Claire Wilkes, who um, had a slow decline from leukemia. And uh, so the... I wonder if there's a way of... It's hard to... to um, They were both astonishing uh, in their um, refusal to turn away from, from what was their fate. And um, so Again and, and again and again, Wilkes's work seems to ask, who but the dead can comfort the dead? When Wilkes faced her own death, she did not need to reach for a new vocabulary. In the outpouring of drawing over her last few months, we see the confirmation of the vision of a lifetime. Her figures are folded and contained in spaces too small for them. 
We look in, in, in at them, but they are not looking out at us. There is no bid for pity, no plea, no self-pity. Consciousness is contained in the body. And consciousness, these drawings seem to imply, is eventually born into something bigger, the larger or infinite space that is death. Her last drawings are an attempt to face that beginning. I was very moved by the way you wrote about visual artists uh, in there, and I'm interested in what it is that draws you to them and their work, and what you see is the relationship between that and writing and what you do with words. I think um, there's a couple of things. One is the, um, the idea that a, a painting in its containment is very similar to a page or a poem. Um, and our experience of a single space that we have to take in, whether that space is the page or that space is the canvas. Um, I, I'm drawn to the silence of painting, um, how it reaches us um, without language. Uh, there, there's another painter mentioned in Infinite Gradation, Jack Chambers, Canadian painter, who, he, he was a high realist, but towards the end of his life, um, he also had leukemia, which he lived with for a number of years and sought various treatments. And at one point, he was in India visiting a holy man, and he was in a waiting room there, very hot, place waiting to, to see this, this holy man. And um, he made drawings, pencil drawings, which are so faint, you, you don't know whether they've been drawn by a pencil or an eraser. They are they're absolutely at the moment of disappearing. They're very, very moving. Um, and when he was a young man, he painted a, a, a tremendous still life. And at the end of his life, he was painting uh, still lifes. Um, but in this, in this early painting, he has a, a wonderful high realism, again, light blanched uh, image of a flower, of flowers. And beside this beautiful nature is a wall outlet a plug, <laughs> um, and his need, his message, his desire to make sure that we see the plant, we see the, the beautiful natural form set against the wall outlet um, is so profoundly moving. The absolute banal daily existence that we live, um, which is not, not, not that it's set against beauty, but that it is beauty itself. Um, so, in terms of visual art, there's a, a way of conveying um, 
intent. Uh, there's a way of conveying meaning that um, bypasses uh, so much in us that language is, and language is how we negotiate the world, right? So when we read, we have to uh, come, try to come to a page, the page anew, or um, with a receptivity to language being used in a certain way, um, and we have to we have to go through that moment of saying, okay, let me let me hear what's being said on the page uh, in a way that we we don't hear when we are you know negotiating the supermarket. Um, but with a painting, again, it's also um, we're, our, our life is relentlessly visual. But here we have someone who has singularized a moment. Um, so that appeals to me greatly. Mm, I can see that. The other, um, the other point you make about Wilkes is um, you say, a lifetime of art made by a woman's hand and from the point of view of a woman, what women know. And you write quite movingly and forcefully, I think, about the way in which the reception of art by women is different. To the, the, the way we respond to art, whether it's writing or visual art or whatever, is intensely gendered. Um, can you... Do you think that's as true now as it was 30 years ago when you were first being published? Or do you think once you have a body of work behind you, is that no longer the case? In terms of um, the authority of voice? Yeah. Or... Yes, I think that's changed. Um, I do think that's changed. <laughs> There's a redemptive arc right there. <laughs> Redemption, who would have thought? You would have, clearly. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.